at this time for Children's Church. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship and praise this morning. Uh, following the, the service, uh, parents, grandparents are reminded down in the fellowship hall, if you would, uh, as soon as you come out of the sanctuary or just head down the stairs and uh, be able to follow all the way to the end of the fellowship, or end of the hall to the fellowship hall, and should pick your children up. Uh, today we continue our series. We've had a little pause over the last couple weeks not being here on this series lifting up our low view of God been using uh, the book knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer as kind of a roadmap or a guide uh, to follow and looking at this idea of lifting up our low view of God this whole theme and series is the higher our view of God the higher our worship the higher our our love for him the higher our uh, willingness to be obedient people not because we should but because it's just a natural outflow when we get a larger higher more accurate biblical vision of who God is a low view of God our worship becomes passionless it's just kind of going through the motions, obedience becomes one of those optional things when we just kind of bring God down to our level. So we've been in the series lifting our view of God as he is and not as we sometimes have the tendency as human beings to make him to be in our own image, in our, in our own likeness. And so today we are going to look at the, the topic of the justice of God, the justice of God. If you have a Bible, you can open to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18, and we'll begin there uh, looking at several spots uh, through this morning in the scripture, and there are sermon notes you can follow along with blanks on the screen. So a story was told of a man who loved golf and was such a golf uh, addict that he was neglecting his job. It was his regular pattern that he would call into work and say that he was sick so that he could go out and play golf. And so one morning after making his regular call to the office, God decided it was time to teach this man a lesson. And he sent an angel to do it. And the angel said, whispered in his ear, if you play golf today, you will be punished. Now, thinking it was only his conscience, which he had successfully beat down and whipped in the past, the man just smiled and said, no, I've been doing this for years. No one is ever going to know I'll never be punished. So God, through this angel, decided this could not go on any longer. So the man stepped up to the first hole, and he promptly swung, and he whacked the ball three 100 yards straight down the middle of the fairway and he was amazed because he had never driven the ball more than 200 yards his next shot he was on the green putts were going in like crazy he had never played golf like this at the end of the first nine holes he was six under par he was having the round of his life. He's walking on air. He's playing near perfect, flawless golf. And by the time the whole round of 18 holes was over, he had shot a 61, which was 11 shots under par. Par is just what the course says if you should be able to, to do uh, it in 72 strokes. He did it in 61. The man was walking on air. He couldn't wait to tell everyone back at the office about it. And all of a sudden, it dawned on him. As his face fell, he could never tell anyone about the round 
that he had had with the help of this angel. And with that, the angel smiled and went about his next task. Justice. Now, obviously, that wasn't a true story. Justice. God is just. God always does what is right. And he acts always in a way that is right, in line with his righteousness. In fact, Tozer makes uh, the point in the book, in the chapter on justice, that righteousness and justice are so closely linked that the same word in the original language can be translated both justice and righteousness. They're so closely linked, justice and righteousness. Justice is about God bringing about what is right. You know, today we live in a world, and especially in our country, where we hear about justice a lot, don't we? We hear about social justice. We hear about racial justice. We hear about reproductive justice and economic justice and many other examples of justice. And though these are often pursued in an incomplete way, in an incomplete view, I believe it shows us the depth in humanity of our knowledge and of our our human knowledge that something is not right, that things are broken, that our world isn't right, that things are wrong, and there needs to be, and it needs to be put back into place. It needs to be made right. Sometimes I am grieved by the fact that because our culture doesn't always pursue some of these ways of justice in the most complete and the best ways, that we can have the tendency to neglect justice in general. One of those throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing, which leaves this huge vacuum. The church, we are the ones who should be stepping in with biblical justice not criticizing and saying that is wrong. We need to be the ones who step in to justice. And so this morning, we want to seek to have our view of God lifted in our understanding of his justice so that we might join him and seek to engage faithfully in the work of justice as well. So let's begin with understanding his justice understand God's justice first. And so three thoughts this morning as we seek to understand God's justice. And the first is that justice is simply God being God. Justice is God being God. Tozer says it this way as he comments on Genesis chapter 18. He says, the Old Testament asserts God's justice in language clear and full and as beautiful as may be found anywhere in the literature of mankind. When the destruction of Sodom was announced, Abraham interceded for the righteous within the city, reminding God that he knew he would act like himself in the human emergency. If you were to read Genesis chapter 18, three visitors have come to meet Abraham and to say that they are going that God is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they about, go about the business of beginning to come and to bring about God's justice on the sin for what has been taking place in Sodom, it says in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 18, the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, 
Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right. If you were to read through the rest of Genesis chapter 18, after saying 50, Abraham says 40, and then 30, and then 20 righteous. If there are 10 righteous, will you spare the city? And there were not even 10 righteous in the city of Sodom. But Abraham intercedes because he knows that God is just. He's going to treat the righteous and the wicked correctly and rightly, but he stands in because he says, I know that you are a God who will do what you say. You are going to do what is right. You are going to make right what is wrong. Justice is about God doing what he says he's going to do. Because even more than what he does, it's who he is. God is righteous. God is just. Therefore, he always does what is right. And Abraham knows the character of God. Abraham knows that he is going to do what is right, that he is going to deal with the sin of the city rightly. And so he comes and he intercedes because justice is about God being God. It's about him acting according to his character. He knew that God would not treat the righteous like the wicked because he is just. But he knew that he had to deal with the sin because God is just. It is who he is, and so it is what he does. In Psalm 11, verse 7, it says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and upright men will see his face. Justice is simply who God is. He does what is right, and he does what is just because he is a righteous and just God. Understanding God's justice begins there. It is rooted in his nature and his character. Justice is simply God being God. Secondly, justice is God bringing equity. Justice is God bringing equity. If you would turn to Psalm chapter 94, about midway through the Bible to Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist writes this. O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long will the wicked O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? How often do you hear this? Lord, this complaint, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Lord, if you are righteous, if you are just, how can you allow this to go on? How can you allow it to continue? Because of who God is, we understand that God is going to bring justice. And so he complains to the Lord, Lord, why are the proud, why are the wicked jubilant? 
because he is the judge who avenges. And so the psalmist asked the question, Lord, why haven't you done anything about it? And behind all of this is this question, it's just not fair. Have you felt that cry within you before? Lord, it's just not fair. Lord, we've done what is right. We've sought to be honoring of your ways. And those who haven't, they're jubilant. (laughs) Nothing is happening to them. God, it's not fair. It's a cry for equity. It's a cry for fairness. Tozer says it this way. Justice embodies the idea of moral equity. And iniquity is the exact opposite. It is inequity. The absence of equality from human thoughts and acts. Judgment is the application of equity to moral situations and may be favorable or unfavorable according to whether the one under examination has been equitable or inequitable in heart and content. What's Tozer saying? He's saying this. Inequity destroys fairness. And iniquity is always the cause of inequity. Iniquity is just another word for sin. So wherever sin is, inequity is caused by iniquity. Inequity, lack of fairness, is caused by iniquity, sin. Sin destroys the fairness of the world. It destroys the fairness of the world between God and man, and it destroys the fairness of the world between man and man, between man and woman, between woman and woman, between children, between youth, between young men and young women. It destroys the fairness of the world. It brings inequity. Throughout the Old Testament, God was consistently concerned with the sin of Israel. Because it broke his relationship with them, and it affected their relationships with each other. And so there was this inequity because of their iniquity, because of their sin, between man and God. God was not treated fairly, we can say. Their covenant relationship was not honored. Sin happened. Inequity happened because of their iniquity, because of their sin. There was a lack of fairness. Imagine the God of all the universe who has done everything, who has raised up a people, created a people out of Abraham, out of nothing, a people for himself to, to bring the Messiah to the world, and they don't treat him according to the covenant relationship that they had set out. If anybody has the right to say it's not fair, it's God. You haven't done what, I, what we agreed. And so there was inequity because of iniquity, fairness to God. But there was also inequity, fairness to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan, to the alien. I would encourage you to read the the book of Amos. If there's an Old Testament book that just screams of the justice of God and the cry of God for justice on the earth, it may be encapsulated so well in the book of Amos in the Old Testament. In Amos chapter 1, verse 11, God raises up Amos, who's just a farmer, who he turns into a prophet, and he comes against the nations that are surrounding Israel, and he, he prophesies against the war crimes 
that the Edomites did. Not just were they in war, but they were full of rage and anger and hostility, and they went farther. They, they mistreated. There was inequity in it. There was lack of fairness. There was sin that brought about destruction to the people, war crimes. And so God's heart for justice is spoken through Amos against the Edomites. Another group of people in chapter 1, verse 13, the Ammonites, they had this brokenness, this inequity, in that they murdered pregnant women and they ripped open the children in those pregnant women. And so God is concerned because of the lack of dignity for human life, both of the woman and the child, as well as for the people who are in war and the war crimes that were committed by the Edomites. Then the Moabites, disrespected in chapter 2, verse 1, disrespected the king of Edom's dead body. Not only did they kill him, but they ground his bones down as if it were lime. The disrespect of life, even in death. And God is upset, saying there's not justice. Justice needs to come. Amos prophesy against them because justice has not come. We see God's concern for life, war crimes, pregnant women and children, unborn children murdered, and even the disrespect for a human body that has been killed. But it's interesting, right after Amos prophesies this from the Lord, he now comes to Israel. He now comes to God's people, and he prophesies against them in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, about their oppression of the poor about the way that they had been enslaving their own people, about the ways that they had been committing sexual acts that degraded people, that were using people. And so you see, even in the midst of all this concern for life, there's also concern for the poor and for those who are being oppressed. God is so concerned with the inequity toward life, war crimes and oppression of the poor, that he sends Amos to tell them of how he is a God who brings justice and equity to those who are treated unfairly. It's God being God because he is a just and righteous God. Justice is about God bringing equity to the earth. But God, lastly, justice is about God in his redemptive work. Justice is ultimately redemptive. If you would turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We see this theme. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, but now... A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So this has already been talked about. God has already been making this known through the law that he gave to Moses and through the prophets that have testified to it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made legally right freely by his grace through the redemption that came 
by Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus, pay attention here, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So until Christ, he had not poured out the fullness of his wrath against sin. He had let it go unpunished until Christ came so that he, verse 26, could demonstrate his justice, doing what is right at the present time, so as to be just, doing what is right, and being the one who justifies and makes people legally right with God, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God's justice is a redemptive work. as he punishes the unrighteous, and as he lifts up the wrong who have been treated unfairly. He is just, and he will redeem all things. Paul shows us this. As the central event of human history, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, their punishment was poured out on Christ. He took it for us so that God could remain both just, because sin has to be punished, while at the same time being able to redeem and to justify and to bring into relationship with himself those who have faith in Christ and in his shed blood on the cross. And not only would sin be atoned for for our relationship with God, but there would also be redemption of the brokenness that sin causes. See, God's justice is not solely so that he can destroy everyone and everything. God's justice is so that he can redeem all that is broken and all that is unfair and make it all right again. There will be those on, that are not on the side of Christ who will experience the justice of God and punishment. But in doing that, it will be the redemption and the restoration of all things that are brokenness that are broken. And as we walk towards wickedness increasing, we're walking towards the fullness of redemption. We're walking towards justice being done more fully. I want you to think about it this way for a moment. So this nice handy dandy umbrella. So under Christ, those who come to Christ have faith in his blood shed on the cross. There is atonement. There is the washing over of sin. Leah prayed about this this morning as we, as we came, that God did not just give us fig leaves to hide our sin, to kind of cover over. He gave us the blood of Christ shed, and everyone who comes are washed and covered with the blood of Christ, and we're brought under Christ. We're brought into the life of Christ. So that even in the midst of all the injustice, everything has been poured out on Christ. We are in the midst of it. Outside of Christ, his judgment will come. All that is wrong will be made right so that things can be redeemed and restored. All that is broken. But friends, I believe the Lord has a word for us in this. And that under Christ, this just judge pours out his redemptive wrath so that we would be saved of all wrong. But sometimes what we do 
is we come to Christ. And so for some of you, this word may be that you have been outside of Christ and you need to place your faith in him. Receive that atoning work of Christ's blood on the cross and to come into Christ. Sometimes what happens is we stand in the life of Christ and we look out to all the wicked around us and we say, God, when are you going to pour out your wrath and your justice on them? See, redemption and justice is ultimately about the just judge doing what is right. And if we let God do what is right, then it frees us up to start coming and start pulling others into Christ. See, we spend a lot of time, I believe, being under here and saying, God, when are you going to pour it out? When are you going to do justice to the wicked over here? And over here and back there and over there and back there. When are you going to bring justice? When are you going to right the wrongs of all these wicked people around us in the world? And you know what that keeps us from doing? It keeps us from being on mission. We're so asking God to make all the evildoers get what they need. When the prayer should be, God, will the judge of all the earth do what is right? Because that's not yours and my job. What he has called us to do is to be a people on mission who are saying, there are those who are not following Christ, and we want to go and rescue the perishing. We want to be on mission. We want, Jesus, for you to bring as many under the umbrella of your love, the umbrella umbrella of the redemptive work of God, the just work of God poured out on Christ, the one who is just and the one who justifies. God will bring justice to the earth. We cry, Lord, we know that you are just and we know that you are right. Will not the God of all the earth do what is right? Do it, Lord. But until then, may we be a people on mission who are seeking to bring others into Christ. This attitude is necessary if we are going to do the second part, and that is to work for justice. If you would turn to Micah chapter 6 verse 8, this is where we will close this morning. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And these are always the one that are challenging to find because they're so small. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. The Lord says this, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord has called us to be people who live with justice, who live loving mercy, who are people who walk humbly with our God and who act for justice where justice does not exist. And we do this because we have been created in the image and the likeness of God. We do justice as image bearers of God. If God is 
if justice is part of who God is, if he is righteous and he is just, then we as those created in his image and his likeness, we are going to be people who are going to hunger after justice, who are going to be as God is, who acts as God is. We walk humbly with him. We live with justice in our own lives. We work for justice where justice is not uh, active. We love mercy because our God is a God of justice and we created in his image and his likeness are to be like him and to do as he does. Friends, we are people who then not only do it because that's who we are, created in his image and likeness, but it also directs us in how we are to do it. According to the standards of God's word and according to the standards of his scriptures, we are to do justice as God does it, according to his standards and according to his character. So we are people of justice as image bearers of God. Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We do it because we are created in the image of God. And we do justice. This is where we're going to wrap up with a practical application this morning. We do justice by addressing inequity redemptively. If our God is a God who addresses inequity and who does it in a redemptive way, then that is what we should be concerned about as well. That God is concerned with inequity and God does it redemptively, we do it too. So how might this look? How might this look? James chapter 1 verse 27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We sang about it. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, let us not lift our souls to another this morning. That we would be living in purity. That's keeping ourselves polluted from the world so that we might look after those who are in distress. We talked earlier about Amos. We saw in Amos that God is concerned about life about the sanctity of human life. And so we as his people need to be concerned about the sanctity of human life as well. I'm sure you are aware back on June 24th that Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. And for nearly 50 years, Christians have been praying and working for this to be overturned. God was concerned about the murder of pregnant women and their children in Amos. So we, as people created in his image and likeness, we, as followers of Christ, we believe that the sanctity of human life is a large issue, a huge issue for believers. We believe that life is sacred. We believe that it begins at conception, and therefore we need to stand and care for those who don't have a voice, the unborn. We need to recognize also, as many Christians celebrate that decision taking place, that there are many who don't think that that is a good thing. And so how we respond to those who don't agree with that is hugely critical. And we need to do it with kindness. We need to be a people marked by kindness. We need to be a people who, instead of arguing, are kind, are compassionate, and are people who listen and are willing to understand to peop- uh, understand people who don't necessarily see it the way we do. 
And I would say as well that they're in a, in a group this size, that there may be uh, people here today or those listening somewhere online who are saying, I don't necessarily agree with that. And if that is the case, we love you, and this is a place where we gather together to worship God. And so some of these things that can become divisive things, we want to work these things out together. But we, as a church, we hold to the sanctity of human life, and we believe that children should have the right to live. We also need to work and understand this, that just because the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, that this does not mean the work is done by any means. In fact, I believe the work is just beginning. There are many states who still have abortion as legal, and so that's gonna be a whole process of things that will go. We live in a state where that is still the case. The reality is there is a lot of work that needs to be done, and here's where I wanna try to apply it this morning. Recently, a study that was done a number of years ago has uh, been brought into greater prominence. And it's a study called the Turnaway Study. And it's a study that is not by anybody uh, faith-based, a woman by the name of Diana Green Foster and her team set about this study. And here's what it was all about. This Turnaway Study included 1,000 women from clinics in 21 states who closely resemble the population seeking abortions in the United States as a whole. Women who received abortions and women who were denied abortions were similar at the time they sought abortions. Their lives, however, diverged after in ways that were directly attributable to whether they received an abortion or not. These 1,000 women were interviewed over a period of five years and tracked for a period of 10 years. This all came to, uh, the results came around 2016 or so, something like that. And so there were some major outcomes of this study that were brought out, and I believe they're helpful for us to understand. Here's three major outcomes that the study had. The first was this, that denying a woman an abortion creates economic hardship and insecurity that lasts for years. Women who were turned away and went on to give birth experienced an increase in household poverty lasting at least four years relative to those who received an abortion. Years after an abortion denial, women were more likely to not have enough money to cover basic living expenses like food, housing, and transportation. This is just the reality of the study. Those who had it, or had an abortion, had greater economic well-being. Those who didn't, because they were turned away, and the reasons they were turned away, there were clinic rules or gestational limits, had harder economic times. A second outcome. Women turned away from getting an abortion are more likely to stay in contact with a violent partner. They are also more likely to raise the resulting child alone. Physical violence from the man involved in the pregnancy decreased for women who received abortions because they got out of those abusive relationships more often than not, but not for the women who were denied abortions and gave birth because they stayed with that man. By five years, women denied abortions were more likely to be raising children alone 
without family members or male partners compared to the women who received abortions. The third major outcome that the study had, and all of this has come from um, the University of California just kind of summarizing this in, their, in a website article they had. The third is this. The financial well-being and development of children is negatively impacted when their mothers are denied abortion. The children women already have at the time they seek abortions show worse child development when their mother is denied an abortion compared to the children of the women who received one. They had more time, more resources to devote to that child. Now it's divided. Children born as a result of abortion denial are more likely to live below the federal poverty line than children born from a subsequent pregnancy to women who received the abortion. Summarize this way. Women who received a wanted abortion are more financially stable, set more ambitious goals, raise children under more stable conditions, and are more likely to have a wanted child later. Now, you may be saying, why is he sharing this? I'm sharing it not because I agree that abortion should be allowed more and more. I'm sharing it because as abortion becomes more restrictive, these are the realities that we are going to face, our country is going to face more and more. And if God is concerned about life, but he's also concerned about the poor, these things are going to be things that the church has to address, that we have to address, because it's going to make these conditions more a reality. God is equally concerned for life and the poor. Oftentimes we talk much more, especially in the evangelical world, we talk much more about life and sanctity of life than we do about the poor. But if you read the Old Testament and God's justice, he is so passionate about the poor. It comes up probably more than the sanctity of human life. It's wrapped all together. You cannot be caring about the poor or about sanctity of human life without caring about the poor. And so just so we are aware that these things are going to become realities for more and more women and more and more children, how will we respond? So let me encourage you with three potential ways to respond to this. And this is where we'll wrap up. Wrap up. The first way to respond to this in this specific issue is to have a compassionate outlook toward the poor. I'll say that again. It starts with having a compassionate outlook toward the poor. So I will never forget reading, when we were in the early days of our adoption journeys, and really kind of getting a grasp of the landscape of how big the need is for, for care of children. There were a number of different bloggers that were uh, writing blogs are like the thing of the past now, but at that time, that was like the thing that everybody read. Everyone had a blog, and you wrote on your blog, and you read people's blogs, and there were some people who we followed because they were on either adoption or foster care journeys at the same time that we were. So it was just encouraging to get other people's perspective. And I will never forget one of those writers. She had a couple of children biologically, 
and then had taken in several foster care children. And so they were all young. She had like five kids, something like that. And so she was in the grocery store, and you can imagine with five young kids, things were bonkers. Kids are, you know, trying to jump off carts, get things, throw it into carts, they're screaming and yelling. It's at the end of their grocery journey, and all the kids, as well as the mom, they're just done. They, they want to pay for this and get out. And so they're in line, and they're putting all their food on there, and it's going through, and there's a couple behind them. This couple is real agitated. They don't have many things that they have to pay for, but this couple is agitated, and they're whispering to each other. Finally, it gets to the point where it's time to pay. This mom takes out her food stamps. Not because she needed the food stamps, but because that was part of how the government had given in the foster care system care for these kids, food stamps to pay for the food that would come along with these foster care children. And this couple, the husband could restrain himself no more. And he said, you know, if you're going to have that many kids, you should at least be able to pay for them. I shouldn't be the one with my taxpayer money paying for your groceries. Had no clue what the situation was. So by the time she got all of her stuff, they paid for their few things. She got all the kids wrangled. That couple had gone around them and had made it out to the parking lot first. And as she followed, it just happened to be that they were parked in the same aisle, same row. They were down a little bit farther than her car, but as they got closer to where her car was and their car was, guess what was plastered on the back of that person's car? Like, tons of them. Pro-life, 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 bumper sticker, one after another. And her point was this. If we are pro-life people, if we really care about life, then we also have to care about the poor and the care of those who are having those children. And if we can't, there's something wrong with our hearts because God cares for the poor. It is truly a womb-to-tomb kind of thing. We have to care. And so we really need to do some heart wrestling. What is our outlook toward the poor? Is it just, oh, those are the people who don't have jobs and who can't take care of themselves and just living? Or are we willing to say, I need to understand this more. I need to understand the dynamics of our culture. I need to understand God's heart for the poor. Have a compassionate outlook toward the poor. That's the first. The second, I believe this is very specific to us here. And that is to demand that elected officials be pro-life in policy from womb to tomb. Here's why I say that. Every year we have handouts that are dropped off. Two different kinds get dropped off at the church around election time. Who are the pro-life candidates? And everyone always wants those. I mean, they they go like hotcakes around here. And I think it's a good thing to know where are candidates Where do they stand on pro-life issues so we know who we're voting for? But one of the struggles that I have is that those become very specified to one issue. Do we know what those candidates who we are desiring to see, who many are desiring to see be put into office because of their pro-life stand, do we know what they also see towards their care of the poor? I think it's a fair question. Because if it is 
have children be born, but then they've got to figure it out on their own, that's an issue. And I believe we have to do a better job in how we understand who we are voting for and who is in office, that if they are not going to care for the poor and do what is necessary, then as loud as we have been on the pro-life issue, we need to be as loud on making sure that those women and children who now are going to be born, that they are cared for. And we can do that. That doesn't take a lot. You can write. You can research. You can figure it out. And the last. Those two, I think, are fairly simple. Last one. This one gets a little harder, and not everyone may have this opportunity. But be present in lives of people in order to be a source of love, compassion, and support. Did you hear one of those reasons or outcomes of people who didn't have access to abortion, who were denied? Is after five years, they did not have, the majority did not have support of a partner and a family. Who are going to be the people? Who are going to be James 127 people? Who are going to come alongside the orphans? In the widows. I know that may not look the exact same as it did in biblical times, but who are the people who are going to come alongside the single moms? Who are the people that are going to come alongside those children who need presence? Who are those who are going to come alongside to be the presence of Jesus, to be able to give good news for their bad news? Who are they going to be? Because I guarantee you this. If we're happy just to be hanging out under here, all those people that need to be brought into Christ and the need, the compassionate care of Christ, they're going to be out there on the fringes. We need to do some walking. We need to carry the presence of Christ into the lives of people. We need to begin to understand where people are at and why they're there so that we can address their bad news with the good news of the gospel in word and in deed. Our God is a God of justice. Will not the God of all the earth, will not he do what is right? Scriptures say, absolutely. When he does it, he's going to bring redemption to a broken and fallen world. For those who reject him, justice will be done. But oh, we know that the heart of God is that none would perish, but that all would come to Christ. Amen? So may we be people who out of a heart of mission live with justice and where brokenness is. And this is just one. We could have lots of issues of brokenness. But this is just one. It's a hot one in our day, isn't it? <laughs> This is just one. How do we address it? What do we look at? And I'm sure there's much more. The Spirit can do a much better job at addressing these things. But may the Lord give us grace. So Father, I thank you that you are just. That you are righteous. That you do what is right all the time. Not because it's just your acts, but it's because it's who you are. You are righteous and you are just. 
God, we do ask that you would bring equity to the brokenness of our world. As Tozer said, that you would bring the moral equity to our world. In relationship with you, may there be salvation for lost people. In relationship with others, may we be ambassadors and may we be ministers of reconciliation. And where the brokenness of sin has caused there to be issues, sometimes that are bigger than we can even begin to get our heads around. As we walk humbly with you, may we be people who do and who act justly and who love mercy. We thank you for your heart for us. That's how you treat us. May we be representatives of that. For the glory of your name, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.